0: Um, So I'm going to be reading Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. So I'll let you guys look there for a second. Okay. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Establishing and upholding with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. From the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And I'm also going to read Matthew 11, chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. So I'll give you guys a couple of seconds to get to that as well. So come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Thanks.
1: Well, evening everyone. Let me add my welcome to Sam. If you are new or visiting, uh, my name is Rod. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. It's great that you're here with us tonight as we um, get into our start of our Christmas series as we reflect on God's work through the gift of his Son. Uh, Let me pray for us. Uh, We're coming to a really well-known passage in both cases. Uh, We pray that God will uh, speak through his word as we hear it tonight. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the freedom to gather. Uh, We thank you that we enjoy so many blessings in this country. Uh, We pray, Lord, that you would Help us not to take them for granted, including having your word in our language, that we might read it and understand it. And Lord, we pray that we might hear your voice clearly tonight through your word, that you might be at work in us by your spirit, that you might apply your word to our hearts and minds, that we might respond in a right manner and bring glory to you. If we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as Sam mentioned in the intro, this year, like last year, has been a draining time. I'm sure many of you are feeling a little weary at this point, less than two weeks out from Christmas. If you haven't got onto gifts, uh, get moving. It's coming quickly. The constant presence and reminder, I guess, of, of COVID-19 throughout this year, as well as all the persistent measures to control it, to test for it, to monitor the pandemic, has taken its toll on our population. And of course, for all nations around the world. And I think even with the increasing freedoms that we've enjoyed um, over the last few weeks as the high uh, uptake of vaccines has allowed, there's still this uh, daily sort of shadow of the pandemic over us. And I think that has been exhausting for humanity in various ways. Some have likened it to a time that's akin to war or extreme financial strife like in a depression because there's been prolonged fear, there's been prolonged sense of insecurity for many, there's been radical changes to our lifestyle because of this and these things can erode our physical and mental defences. And so I think it's natural for us at some level to feel weighed down, to feel burdened by the past couple of years. And even as we look forward uh, with the hope of the ongoing um, power of the vaccines, we're we're learning to coexist with the pandemic and its ever evolving variants. No doubt there's going to be a continued sense of fatigue uh, in our population for some months to come. And I guess uh, many people have been waiting for us to kind of turn a corner, for there to be real light at the end of the tunnel. And perhaps you've been praying for that yourself for a number of months even. It can feel like there's been this huge load that we've been bearing. And I think as we approach Christmas, it's worth asking the question for ourselves or for our society generally as well, how can our weary world Find hope as Christmas draws near. How can our weary world rejoice? That's what we're going to consider tonight. I've got two answers to that question that flow out of the passages that we just had read for us. And The first answer to that question is this. Through grasping the fulfillment of God's promises. Through grasping the fulfillment of God's promises. Because in Isaiah 9, there is a weariness from a heavy yoke of oppression And there's this longing for a new day to escape the darkness that has shrouded the nation as they await a period of peace to come. Notice again the words that are recorded by the prophet in verses 1 and 2 that set that scene for us some 800 years prior to Christ. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So you get this uh, fabulous Word picture here, this contrast between light and darkness, particularly in verse 2, is very vivid. And the term darkness for us is defined by the parallel phrase there, uh, living in the shadow of death. But what's being referred to? What is this darkness? What is this shadow of death that's being spoken of for the nation of Israel? Well, verse 1 helps us here. As the prophet speaks of gloom and distress, He speaks about the humbling of the northern area of Galilee. That was the home of Zebulun and Naphtali. They were two of Israel's 12 tribes. And the first word of verse 1, nevertheless, alerts us to the fact that there's a context here from chapter 8 and indeed uh, the previous chapters as well, but particularly chapter 8. And in these chapters, it's made clear that there is this shadow of death that is hanging over the nation, And the reason for that is that God is judging his people because of their sin. Israel has turned away from God, and God is bringing judgment upon them. Ultimately, he's going to bring it through the armies of the Assyrian Empire. And so in 721, they will come and smash the northern kingdom. And then 20 years later, they will return and attack the southern kingdom in Judah as well. And so the section we're looking at in chapter 9 verses 1 to 7 is actually the finale, the climax of this first section of Isaiah's prophecy, where there is some rest, there is some hope offered beyond the current situation. Zebulun and Naphtali are in the north and the east, and that part of the northern kingdom of Israel would be the first that would face the brunt of the initial attacks from the Assyrians. But did you notice, too, that they would also be the source of future life and hope, that this area of Galilee would actually be honoured in a time to come? Well, we've grasped something of the darkness in these opening verses, which overwhelmed God's people then, but what of the light? What is the great light at the end of the tunnel? the light which will dawn. Well, before the writer lets us in on that mystery, notice firstly he wants to talk about the effect of the light in verses 3 to 5. So notice again what is stated there from verse 3. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as a people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. And so, suddenly, with his gaze fixed on the future, the prophet Isaiah. He's talking about this glorious reversal of the current devastation that is upon God's people, that is being inflicted. In verse 3, there's this rejoicing of the nation, and he wants to liken it to a couple of events. He likens it to harvest time and then to a military victory where people are dividing the plunder in the aftermath. I think with regard to harvest celebrations, uh, we struggle to appreciate the joy of such a time in the ancient world because we live in a day and an age where with our machinery and our pesticides and our new drought-resistant strains of crops, we we just expect abundance, that things will work out. But, of course, that's not even the case today in Australia, is it? Uh, We're a place that's ravaged by drought. You only have to go back 15 years, and Australia was in the grips of a massive drought that had seen returns in farms drop to their lowest level for 50 years. And so I think perhaps that can help us recapture some of the sense of joy of a successful harvest in the ancient world with everything else that was against them in such a day. But Isaiah also wants to use a military comparison to capture the kind of level of joy that the people are feeling or will feel in this future day when things will be good. And so he talks about dividing of the plunder in verse 4. And he takes his listeners back to Judges chapter 6 and 7 when the Midianites were ruling over Israel and God had to raise up yet another judge to give them freedom from the oppression that they were facing. And so he raises up Gideon and remember the famous battle where God gets rid of nearly all his army and he's forced to fight with just 300 people and this miraculous victory comes and God gets all the glory as a result. And he points to the great throwing off of oppression, the great joy that the people had at that point, the rest and the peace that was suddenly brought when that oppression had ended and the Midianites were removed. Jubilation across the nation, weariness and oppression lifting. This is what the people are to look forward to when this light will dawn. Which brings us back to the question, what is the light that will dawn? Well, finally, in verses 6 and 7, the prophet's ready to address that point, isn't he? Look again with me at those famous words, which we know so well. From verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Of the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. There's this great sort of crescendo here as he gets to the end of this little section as he describes, piles, title on title for this one that will come. But when we look back to the start of verse 6, it's perhaps not what the people might think will bring joy. You know, if we're being oppressed by these armies and you're offering a baby. We discover here that the promised light is a person. It's a promised boy who will be born. But who is he? Who would the first readers have imagined in 8th century BC? Well, some commentators have Thought that it was probably the crown prince Hezekiah that maybe came to mind for them. He would turn out to be a reasonably good king in the south in Judah. You know, perhaps it was Hezekiah or somebody else that Isaiah had in mind. But there are problems with such suggestions. In the case of Hezekiah, um, he was born three years before the events being recorded in chapter six and seven. And what is described here is a future child that will be born, somebody who is yet to be, so it can't be Hezekiah. But besides that, there's a much bigger second problem, isn't there, which relates to any future human king fitting this description. It's the exalted divine titles that are given to this son in verse 6, let alone the eternal future reign of this king in verse 7. I mean, this language, it can only be applied to one who is God in flesh? God taking on human form. And so this section has to be pointing us forward to the Messiah that was awaited by God's people, the great Son of God who had come, the true light. And of course, when Jesus came, he announced that he was the light of the world. If we're in any doubt about these predictions, made over 700 years before Jesus was born. The link is made really clear for us in the New Testament as the Gospel writers allude to this passage in Isaiah 9. For example, uh, Luke makes it clear that he is aware both of the exalted titles and the promised eternal reign of this son of David. In Luke chapter 1, he records the words of the angel Gabriel To Mary, even before Jesus was born. Verse 30 in Luke 1. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favour with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And here he is picking up the language of Isaiah chapter 9 and these claims, they're stupendous, that the angel is making about at this stage an unborn baby And Jewish readers of this would have immediately recognised the fulfilment of these words from the prophet Isaiah. This son of David that would come, who was a colossal figure, he would be the greatest ruler that Israel had ever seen. Indeed, the world would ever see. And this is also how Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 is fulfilled. Because although Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the south, in Judea, he would grow up in the north, in Nazareth, in a town in Galilee. And so the promise of a future when God would honour Galilee of the Gentiles was fulfilled in the birth and the life of Jesus. The dawn would break in the very region that had first experienced God's judgment. And this is why the Gospels, all four of them, draw our attention over and over and over to Jesus first preaching the good news in Galilee. I was in the north, in this area that was despised and looked down on, which is where much of his ministry would take place. Well, how can our weary world rejoice? Firstly, we need to grasp the fulfilment of God's promises in the sending of his son. But a second answer to that question is this. Through accepting Christ's refreshing yoke, through accepting Christ's refreshing yoke. Remember that we saw earlier that the effect of this dawning light, one effect in verse 4 of Isaiah 9, was the shattering of a yoke, a yoke that burdened the people, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. And while the yoke that burdened them had to do with the nations oppressing them, in particular Assyria coming, The reason this yoke was placed on them by God was because of their sin. It was because of the people turning away. That same problem of sin, of course, had held sway over humanity ever since the fall in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve had first disobeyed God's word. And so by the time we get to the New Testament in the life of Jesus, We have the religious leaders seeking to place the yoke of the law, which was how the rabbis often spoke of it, on the people heavier than ever before because they had the belief that they could overcome sin if only we could fully obey God's commands, if we could just get it all right. And so they laid that on people all the heavier, that they had to follow every little detail. But Jesus himself would say of them in Matthew chapter 23, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. The reason that the yoke of the law is too great for us to bear is that we have sin hardwired within our flesh by virtue of us being descendants of Adam. We aren't able to follow God's commands in our own strength. We actually don't want to in our natural state. Romans 8 verse 7 says it clearly, The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. We've got no interest. That's the natural state of humanity ever since the first sin. So you think about it if you were living as a Jew in the first century, being reminded over and over by the religious leaders and the Pharisees that you have to follow these rules, make sure you tithe, even a tenth of your dill and mint and so forth. And then hear Jesus' words as he speaks in Matthew 11 and the power of them. In this context of people being weighed down by the yoke of the law, which cannot free us from the burden of sin, Jesus offers these amazing words. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, it's submission to Jesus which removes our burden. Taking the yoke of his lordship on us is actually the way to freedom. I want to say to you tonight, if you are weary and burdened with trying to make yourself a better person, trying to overcome sin yourself in some vain effort to earn acceptance with God, to earn acceptance perhaps even with those living around you, then Jesus says, come to him. That's the one solution. No effort of your own will ever earn your salvation or acceptance with God or anyone. Last year, Dane Ortland released a book uh, titled Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. Some have argued that Uh, This is the greatest book on the character of God since Jim Packer's Knowing God was published in the 1970s. And having read it in the last few months, I've got to agree, it's an instant classic. And he argues, as Charles Spurgeon did many years previously, that Matthew 11, verse 29, is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus reveals his heart, where he offers a self-description of of the essence of his character. What are the first words that come to your mind when you think of Jesus? Transcendent and powerful, holy and separate, great teacher, perhaps all the titles of Isaiah 9, and all of those and far more are true of Jesus. What does Jesus offer as a summary of himself? Gentle and lowly, or perhaps gentle and humble in your translation. Well, in reflecting on this and our burden of sin and how we cannot keep God's law, Dane Ortland writes in his book this You don't need to unburden yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. No payment is required, he says. I will give you rest. His rest is a gift. See, we're simply to place our faith in Jesus, the promised king. And the yoke of Jesus, we're told, is easy. The burden of the gospel is light. And that's because we can give up on our own flawed efforts, our own faulty goodness, and instead we can trust in His perfect righteousness. And our spiritual weariness will never be relieved by seeking to keep commands. Sin can't be defeated that way. We'll always be weighed down. They'll always cast a shadow over our lives. It's only through Christ's finished work on the cross where he paid for our sin and won us forgiveness. That true freedom can come, true release from our burden before God. Now, that's not, that freedom is not a license to sin. Notice here that we're still to wear a yoke. A yoke is a symbol of subjection, of obligation. We're subject to Jesus as our Lord. And yet we're told it's an easy yoke. The Greek word for easy in verse 30, krestos, can mean well-fitting, The idea is that the yoke of Christ, submission to his rule, fits comfortably on those who have entrusted their lives to him. The burden he asks us to bear is light because it's not obedience to external commands, but it's loyalty to a person. It's a longing to follow our Saviour. Jesus says in these verses, "'Learn from me.'" for I am humble in heart. That word for learn is the same base word of disciple. Come and be my disciple. Learn from me. Walk with me. But what is the rest he's going to offer if I do that? How does this rest work? Um, Maybe like a lot of people, when you think about Christmas and rest, uh, you just think about Christmas Day afternoon. You know, you've had the big meal. You're been frantic for a month and then you just collapse and and that's your afternoon nap and that is the the most joyous moment you have for all of christmas or maybe you don't get to do that you're just frantic throughout christmas day looking after a lot of other people and that happens on boxing day you know you're sitting down to watch the cricket and you can just fall asleep for the next six hours it's perfect well is that what jesus is offering i want to say that the rest offered by jesus is something a bit deeper Bit more long-lasting than that. The word translated rest in our Bibles there can be better translated refresh actually in this context because the analogy of the yoke in this passage makes it clear that it's not a ceasing from all work that Jesus is calling us to. We've got work to do. A yoke is placed on oxen to plow the field, right? We're taking on Jesus' yoke and we're to serve him our master. I want it to cease and desist. And so we're actually being refreshed. The mindset here is of the sort where Jesus is enabling his disciples to go back to the task of learning from him, of serving him, of bringing glory to him with their lives each and every day. It's about renewed energy. But secondly, did you notice in verse 29, the second time Jesus uses the word rest, he talks about rest for your souls our commitment to christ as our savior means not only refreshment in the present which he does through the work of his spirit we're not told that in this passage here but he continues to refresh us as we follow him and walk closely with him but there's a future element to this there's the eternal rest of heaven to come rest for our souls not only now but in the future And so really the spiritual refreshment we enjoy at any point in the present is just a foretaste of what is to come when we're with Christ face to face in heaven. You see, the rest existed in the beginning, didn't it, in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve walked in the cool of the day with the Lord before sin entered. And then it was shattered by the entrance of sin. And then after that, There was the promise that there might be rest again one day in this promised land, the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey. And yet finally when God's people got to the land of Canaan, it was not the final rest that they were looking for. They still struggled with sin. There was no fulfilment there. And they saw again that it was yet still a shadow that was pointing forward to Christ and his work. And ultimately the consummation of all of that in heaven when God's people were with their Saviour. You see, what was lost at the fall was regained through the cross and we consummated in heaven. That is the rest that we're looking forward to. And so ultimately, the fulfillment of Isaiah 9 comes with the arrival of Christ, as we're seeing in the New Testament. God is the original gift giver. As we get to Christmas, uh, there's so many gifts that will be given and, um, and then re-gifted because they were so good. In a world of passing fads and transient delights, there's actually a greater gift that we actually need to receive at Christmas. I mean, he gave his son for us some 2,000 years ago, the one who would remove our burden of sin, who would truly refresh us from what we're weighed down by, which we can't deal with on our own terms. The rest that our weary world longs for can only be found in Jesus. And for myself, in song, it was put best by the French poet, uh, Placide Capot. He wrote a poem in 1843, which was put to a melody shortly thereafter. O holy night, stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Saviour's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees, oh hear the angels' voices, O oh, night divine, O oh, night, when Christ was born. I mean, this is the first verse and chorus of my favourite Christmas carol, O Holy Night. A beautiful song, even if it's basically impossible for any of us to sing, unless you've got a really good voice. And I I don't. But in the words of this song, there is a deep truth, a deep truth that we should celebrate all the year long. The coming of Jesus changes everything, once and for all. We can move from being those who were rejected Those who had rejected God, ignored him, were deservingly sitting under his judgment, just as the people of Israel were in Isaiah's day. And we can move from that to being forgiven through this child born for us. We can be those who have been refreshed through taking on his easy yoke with this great hope of the eternal rest of heaven to come. This is the solution to a weary world is what we need even if we know Christ as Saviour. We need to see again that submitting to his yoke, to walking closely with him day by day, will produce the peace and the rest and the joy that we are craving for. And it's the only hope this world needs. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your Son. We thank you that he came, as promised by the prophets. But more than that, he laid down his life for us, those burdened by sin, wearied by a fallen world. But we thank you that if we come to him and take on his yoke, submit our lives to the one who is Lord over all, that you will refresh us, that you will sustain us, that you will give us the great hope of eternal rest to come. Lord, we pray that we might live in light of these great truths, that you might help us to hold this perspective as we enter this Christmas season. Help us to share this hope with those around us as well. We thank you that our weary world can rejoice because of your son given for us. And we pray in his name. Amen.